welcome back. I don't know about you, but I'm still slightly reeling from that weird Coldplay announcement. Why would you give up recording and just go touring? I would have thought <laughs> you might want to do the do it the opposite way around. I think we're going to have to get someone on to explain that for us. If not today, then definitely in the new year. Maybe it's an indication of you know where you make your money now in the music business. Anyway, I digress. It's time here to go on the ground where we speak with journalists from around the world discussing stories making headlines on their patch. And today we're in Mexico, where I'm I'm chuckling because it's just the idea of the night of the radishes makes me laugh. It's a Christmas festival like no other, apparently. Every year on December the 23rd, there is a radish carving competition featuring wild animals, the Virgin of Guadalupe, mythical creatures and scenes of everyday life all created out of local radishes. To find out more, we're on the ground in Mexico now with journalist John Bonfilio. Uh, John, welcome to the programme. I mean, it sounds very comical and um, an edible, obviously, pre-Christmas tradition. Um, but are we talking about the same size of radish that we get here in the UK? In which case, it's an incredible, complicated art carving anything out of it, isn't it? It is. You're, you're absolutely right. It is the same radish. I mean, some people carve um, the radishes really uh, intricately to like remarkable degrees of detail. But then other people also build. I mean, this obviously report is a little bit surreal, but let's go with it. People build, <laughs> um, you know, radish towers and radish uh, sculptures to uh, to incredible sizes. This all takes place in the state of Oaxaca, south of. Uh, Mexico City. And, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to understate the importance of this festival for Oaxaqueños. Uh, everybody in the state and certainly the capital goes all obsessive compulsive disorder today for a 24-hour period uh, carving radishes. And one of the really amazing things about this is that the radishes have to be freshly carved. So it's not as though people can can build up to, to the it's day. It's like Halloween. With a pumpkin? No, absolutely not. Today, uh, the radishes will be harvested on the ground. They have to stay uh, fresh and crisp. And uh, it's now um, coming up to 8 a.m. In, uh, in in Mexico. And families across the state of Oaxaca will now just have been harvesting the radishes. We'll take them home uh, and we'll be undertaking the carving now for the next few hours. It all takes place in one day. And then at 5 p.m. today, they will be presenting it on the main central square uh, in Oaxaca for thousands of people uh, to walk by and to... And, to gauge. and there's all manner of, of prizes and awards from, you know, religious art to an open category to a, uh, to a kid's prize. You say, you know, there, there is such a range and diversity of, um, of sculptures and, and carvings that, John. that take place, even celebrities. Really? Well, can we... Um, I didn't realise they'd be so skilled. Celebrities aren't generally known for their extreme skills. Um, but can we just backtrack for a second? Where, why? Why radishes? When did this tradition begin? What's, what's the point? I think it's an interesting point. Like it, it was, um, I mean, it's generally accepted to have started towards the end of the 19th century, and radishes are very emblematic of the state of Oaxaca. It's one of the, its main agricultural um, producers. And there's, I guess, kind of two inception theories that, um, that that begin this tradition. The first one is of misshapen radishes that were left too long at the ground and then, um, you know, assumed various figures or were seen to, uh, to to take after various figures, in particular like the Virgin of Guadalupe, as you say, you know, uh, is, is a regularly appearing one. But then also at the same time, the governor of the time, the, the state of Oaxaca, saw almost a commercial tourism opportunity and decided to attract attention to uh, the radish production in the state and so developed in 1897 this first competition to take place 
um, in in the capital, and has since then grown and grown and been one of the most important uh, cultural events in in the Oaxacan uh, state calendar. So yeah, just started 125 years ago and still going remarkably strong, and now draws international tourism to Oaxaca on the 23rd of December um, every year to to participate in this remarkable festival. Are there um, any other quirky, should I say, ways in which Mexicans celebrate the festive season, or is this the quirkiest? Oh, it's definitely the quirkiest. I mean, um, Mexico and you know, a lot of Latin America, but in particular Mexico, I think, does this really interesting um, amalgam hybridity of uh, Catholic culture and history with uh, with indig- indigenous uh, local culture. So there's, you know, there's a, an infinite array of different little regional festivals that, that take place, but certainly the ones which have, you know, um, put their head above the, the parapet, especially internationally in recent history, is, uh, you know, is the Night of the Raj. The, mo- the other more, most favorite, um, you know, most famous one that everybody knows, of course, now is, uh, you know, the, the Dia de Muertos, the, the Day of the Dead, uh, mm. which has become emblematic and iconic, more broadly and, and also has regional differences but yeah this one is is even more peculiar than celebrating one's dead uh, thank you uh, well let's look um, at a couple of other stories um on that continent um uh, we'll go beyond mexico's borders because perhaps the, the biggest story from latin america this week is the election of gabriel boric in chile in a landslide uh, victory for the left and he's just 35 years old which which is quite young for the leader of a of a nation um what does he want to change about the country and why has he had this landslide victory Yes, um, as you said, 35 years old, uh, Chile's youngest president in in history. And I think to to see to understand his his election, you have to look at uh, recent history in in Chile over the course of the last um, few years. Historically, Chile has, has been one of the most stable democracies in Latin America, but has a re- has had a really rough few years. COVID, you know, of course, has you know um, uh, affected all countries everywhere. But there's also been a number of abuses and scandals that have affected the. The presidency, Pandora Papers, a number of senior politicians, and there's been, in particular, national riots um, over the course of the last uh, three years in uh, across Chile, uh, which all started with a metro fare rise and led uh, and led to, as well as the riots, re- repression, uh, tanks on the streets, a deliberate um, military policy to shoot uh, protesters with rubber bullets in the eyes, and so on, which took people right back to the rule of. Uh, of Pinochet um, and really worried people about the the direction that, that Chile was going in. And that led uh, has led to the drafting of an entire new constitution, interestingly also the first to mandate uh, gender parity, going back to your QC story from um, from early on. And so this, yeah. I guess this, uh, you know, this, this uh, social context has absolutely led to a groundswell, or I think two things, to a groundswell of um, of popular opinion in Chile, which has decided that they do not want to go to the past. They want to step forward into uh, into a progressive uh, future, um, and also, I guess, a kind of a rejection of you know of, of the right and the extreme right in particular, which was represented by Jose Antonio Cast, uh, who was you know an unapologetic supporter of the of the Pinochet regime and whose um, and whose father was an open member of the Nazi party and so on. I think one of the really interesting things about this Chilean election is that there has been no strife. You know, it's, it's of the left versus the, the right, extreme right, but there's been no discourse around uh, questioning the electoral system, around fraud and so on, which we've heard a lot of, you know, internationally over the course uh, in the last couple of years. So um, all sides have agreed that it has been a free and fair election and that Chile wins and that the Chilean electoral system wins. So I think that's a, that's a big win-win for uh, for the country stepping forward.
Well, let's carry on with these happy news stories because that's uh, they're, they're quite hard to come by these days. So we like to really exploit them when we get them. Um, let's move on to Costa Rica uh, because since COP26, Costa Rica's been in the spotlight for its really impressive environmental credentials. Um, what lessons do you think there are to learn from Costa Rica's approach to tackling the climate crisis? What have they done so well? Yeah, absolutely. If we can't do good news stories at Christmas, Mariella, when can we do good <laughs> news stories? When can we, exactly? <laughs> um, no, the, the Costa Rican example, I think, is is really fascinating, especially because it is stuck in a region which really suffers from a lot of different, um, you know, existential issues, including natural disasters, crime, gangs, political instability, economic hardship, and, and so on. But Costa Rica, you know, probably a generation ago now, decided that it had to bet on something else in order to get itself out of this this context, and it bet on the environment. I mean, it's the o- one of the only countries internationally to have successfully halted and reversed uh, deforestation. It's going for total decarbonisation, so not just net zero, but total decarbonisation by uh, by 2050, and a number of other you know different crucial centralised policies that it's established in terms of betting on and investing it in its environment, recognising that you know real forests, uh, real existing forests, are actually worth more economically to a country than. Um, an extractivist uh, instant mm. tendencies. And so I think that the, one of the reasons why Costa Rica has been so pursued and in the spotlight since COP26 is because not it just hasn't um, you know, gambled on this and made a success for it, of it environmentally, but it's also made a success of it economically. It draws you know, regionally vast amounts of, um, of uh, tourism dollars in terms of uh, ecotourism, new cutting-edge uh, renewable investment, uh, and so on. And so, and I think in particular also important to say that one of the things it's, it's done in terms of sustainability and the environment is actually to not just look on it as a separate department, but actually bring it front and centre to all policy making in, in the country. And for sure, not just regionally, but you know, internationally is a, a massively uh, good news story in terms of how it's developed this, you know, this different model in, of investing and, and safeguarding its, its natural resources. And um, just, just finally, the country won the Earthshot Prize and, and the sense of unity was likened to the country winning a, a football match. Uh, that might not be the case here in the UK. Well, it's just we don't win them that often, I suppose. Um, but do you think that um, international leaders do enough to communicate the importance of, of our natural environment and, and sort of celebrate it in the way that Costa Rica has? I mean, there's a real national pride uh, amongst Costa Ricans, isn't there, in what they're doing with their resources? There is. I think you're, you're totally right. I think for most political leaders, um, there is a kind of an embarrassment. Uh, it's, a, it's a footnote, is the environment and sustainability is something which they feel that they have to pay lip service to, but they don't really know or understand how to place it you know, front and centre of all, of all policy making. And that's completely different in Costa Rica. You know, again, as you say, the, the Earthshot Prize was received with, uh, with people going out on, onto the streets and waving the Costa Rican flag. And it, the, the easiest comparison is to, is to make um, for the country in terms of, you know, how a major sporting event would be, the winning of a major sporting event would be uh, received in, in any uh, country. So uh, for sure, I think one of the things maybe that, uh, Costa Rica and Costa Rican policy demonstrates above all else is um, how actually placing the environment um, at the centre of import in terms of um, policy making actually can be a um, a purveyor of opportunity for a country, economic as well as environmental, rather than just something, you know, which which countries have to do.
Mm, indeed. Well, listen, thank you very much for that update from South America. I slightly wish I was there at the moment, particularly in Mexico, carving my radish in Oaxaca. But uh, sadly, uh, I'm not. I'm here under the grey skies of the UK. But John Bonfilio, uh, Latin America journalist based in Mexico. Thank you very much.